addicts are probably more abnormal than the most people in society because we don't fit into that box. And we have exceptional skills, just exceptional skills. And exactly what you just said, the average person cannot come home from work, drink a bottle of wine, feel like crap the next day and be successful at work and have no one know what was going on with that. That, That's a skill and you learn that skill. Now, is it a maladaptive skill because you're drinking that wine? Yeah, it's causing a painful thing. But just like you said, you can use that skill that you have for positives. And so finding your purpose and then using all those skills and energy like you're doing and like you're talking to other people, that's the key. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast, episode 160. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I did some research on the theory of change in 66 days, and I kept going. And somewhere between 55 and 66 days, I found a new life. I slept well. I was happy. I was full of energy, and I lived life as I imagined it should be. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is Will Krause, who is an author, an entrepreneur and an academic. He works with addicts and he helps them to quit using and then to go on and lead the life they were meant to live. He gives them hope. And as you will hear, he's passionate about analysing why people do what they do as he believes this is the key to change. And Will also believes that we can use that key to unlock the life of our dreams. So have a listen to Will explaining why those of us who became dependent on alcohol are actually the lucky ones. I began our conversation by asking Will to introduce himself. So I live in the United States on the West Coast in Washington State, and I moved here about five years ago from the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, to be exact, for a couple of reasons. One, because I hate the cold. And if you know anything about the United States, Wisconsin gets pretty cold. But the second reason I moved up to Washington was to do my next adventure. And my next adventure was to help the parents of addicts 
understand what addiction really is and why the person they love is doing something so foolish to them. And the really interesting thing that happened was as I was talking to the parents of addicts, addicts loved what I was saying even more than the parents because they finally understood for the first time why they do what they do and why they can't stop doing something that they want to stop so bad. And that's what I'm doing now. So I'm up here in Washington helping addicts understand why they do what they do so they can get the life that they were designed to live and have the hope and future that we all want to have. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll talk obviously more about that in a moment. But I think, um, I mean, you had a very painful personal experience of addiction with your younger brother, didn't you? Yeah. So it's really funny because I never thought I was an addict at all until my little brother started becoming an opiate addict. And what happened was he lived with me three separate times and three separate times I tried to help him get over his addiction, but I had no idea what addiction really was or why he was doing what he was doing. And so it never really worked out. And he finally moved back in with my parents. And when I w- I'm up here in Washington state and I get a call one night from one of our mutual friends and he says, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And about 10 seconds later, I got a call from my ex-wife and she said, your little brother died. And so then I called up my friend and said, what happened? And he died in my parents' basement of not of his addiction per se. He was clean when he died, but he died from type 1 diabetes. And the reason he died of his type 1 diabetes was because he still had that addictive mindset. And that addictive mindset was it's too hard to stay sober and it's too hard to do the things that the doctors have told me to do. So he tried to medicate himself with Snicker bars and Mountain Dew. And after all the years of being an addict and trying to self-medicate himself through the Snickers and Mountain Dew, his body just couldn't handle it and, and he died. And through that and helping him, I went into depression and then I was able to figure out through that depression that I was as much of an addict as him. I was just not addicted to a substance, even though I've used that alcohol a ton in my early part of my life. But what really I was addicted to was being perfect. And to me, to be perfect was to be the best looking, richest, smartest guy in every room. And I wish I would have known that about myself when he was with me, because then maybe I could have actually helped him. Yeah, that's very sad. I'm sorry to hear that. Was it his death that, that really triggered your, your passion for this subject and finding out everything that you could? A little bit, a little bit more about my background. It may make a little bit more sense. I spent 20 years in academia just trying to learn absolutely everything I possibly could learn. So when I was spending that, those 20 years in academia, I really never, I never even got a degree, but I have the equivalent of over 20 degrees because I just love to learn, but it was all that perfection addiction that I, that I had at the time that I didn't even know that I had. So the idea was to be the very best professor in the world, you have to know absolutely everything. And one day, one of my professors came up to me and she said, come and see me after class. I want to talk to you. And I thought it was going to be the thing that every professor always does say, you're such a great student. Can you help teach the class? Uh, We want to make you a research assistant and all that. 
And what she did was she slipped over, slipped a piece of paper over to me. And she said, read that. And when I opened it up, it just had the word why on it. And she said, quit learning to regurgitate facts and learn why people do what they do. And the minute that that went through there, I was like, wow, this is just amazing. So I spent the rest of my life trying to figure out why people do what they do. And when my little brother died and I was already in the depressed state, that just put me all the way through the depression. And that was the catalyst that got me to figure out why we do what we do, how the brain actually works, that everything is learned. And through, yeah, through his death and my perceived failure that I couldn't help him through that and going through the depression, I figured out, at least I hope I figured out, and I've seen be helping a lot of people, what addiction really is, not what we have been taught. Yeah, and I, I love your very positive take on addiction, that it could be the key to getting the life we dream about. So let's talk, talk about that a bit. How can we use our pain as a, as a catalyst for growth, which is what you've done? I live in Washington State, and Seattle is the biggest city in Washington. And Seattle has a lot of problems right now. So when I'm talking to people who have been here for a long time, 20, 30, 40 years, I say, I like Seattle. They go, you should have seen it 30 years ago. It was so great, and it was, it was just beautiful. But now it's just going to hell in a handbasket. And they're right. There's a whole bunch of homelessness stuff going on. So when I talk to people here in Seattle, I always tell them, you know, if you put me in Seattle and I'm addicted to alcohol, opiates or anything like that and said, you've got one goal in life. Your goal is to figure out how to get another substance and you have no money, no home, nothing. In downtown Seattle, I wouldn't make it two days at the tops. I'd make it two days. But these addicts that are down there and these homeless people, they make it every single day. And why do they do that? They do that because they have skills that none of us have. They have skills that I, I can't even comprehend. And that's how all addicts are. All addicts have a skill that they've learned to do. It's just that they've been put in a box by society and saying that you don't fit our agenda. You don't fit what we think you should do. And then they don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with that pain and so they become addicts because what they're really doing is saying, I'm not okay. What has to happen or change so I feel okay? And the society is saying, what makes you going to feel okay is go to work. for Stuff that pain in. Just stick it in like water off a duck's back. And they can't do it because addicts have skills and intuitions and emotional intelligence that keeps them from just brushing off pain that everybody else seems to be able to brush off. And that emotional intelligence is really what addicts have. And addicts, I always like to say that addicts are the most sane people there are. The insane people are the ones who are feeling the pain and they just brush it off and then they're miserable, but they say, but look at me, they wear a mask. Addicts are like, I can't wear the mask. I'm in too much pain and I can't fit into what society has. So they find something up. Uh, a drink, a drug, a, a behavior, gambling, their job, their career to say, I'm not okay. What has to happen or change so I feel okay? And that thing that makes them feel okay is what they become addicted to. And then they go, I feel great. What has to remain the same so I feel great? And they keep doing that. And then that pain that they have gets masked. 
But once you become sober, you can take that same pain and you can use that then to find your purpose and to have hope and to do all these other things with it. So it's really about the pain. And another way of thinking about pain is that it can be energy. It needs to be channeled, doesn't it, into energy. Because we find that in our community, you know, so many people, they give up drinking alcohol and then they've got time on their hands and they don't know what to do. So then they go on a kind of journey of self-discovery and they find a passion and then they engage in that passion. I mean, I was one of them that a functioning alcoholic, it takes so much energy to hold it all together, you know, to put on a brave front and do a responsible job, bring up a family, you know, get up every morning, pretend that everything's fine because you appear to be doing what society says you should be doing, you know, to an outside person, you look perfectly functional and successful. But if you're drinking maladaptively, you're just using so much energy to hold that together. So it's, it's such a positive release when you can channel that energy into something, something else. If you could have that conversation with your, your little brother now, what would you say to him to help him to understand that there is a way out of this thing? Addicts are probably more abnormal than that most people in society because we don't fit into that box. And we have exceptional skills, just exceptional skills. And exactly what you just said, the average person cannot come home from work, drink a bottle of wine, feel like crap the next day and be successful at work and have no one know what was going on with that. That's a skill and you learn that skill. Now, is it a maladaptive skill because you're drinking that wine? Yeah, it's causing a painful thing. But just like you said, you can use that skill that you have for positives. So once you get to an addict to see that they're not abnormal, that they're not ostracized from society, that they have skills, especially now in the 21st century, that society is clamoring for, to be emotionally intelligent enough to be able to talk to other people and know why they're doing what they're doing, to be empathetic, to feel their pain, and to actually want to do something about that pain. Almost every addict has that. And if you can give that person that hope. So if I was sitting with my little brother, I would just tell him, I would say, look at these skills you have. Look how you've survived this addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, society likes addicts to feel that they're broken in some way, don't they? That they have a disease. But if we can convince people that are in, in this uh, situation that they're exceptional, you know, and you've written so many great articles about that fact, they're going to learn how to love themselves. And that's something that a lot of addicts need to need to learn because they, they come from a place of very low self-esteem. And if, if they can reframe it and realize that they are exceptional in the, the ways that you've explained, then I think that can be a turning point for a lot of people. So, so let's talk about this disease thing, because uh, I, the first time I ever heard about a disease of alcoholism was when I went to AA, because when I realized I had a problem, I didn't know what to do about it. So I trotted along to an AA meeting here in South Africa. And I hated it. I found it very gloomy and judgmental. And they kept talking about 
having a disease and I just couldn't accept this at all but obviously now over the years you know I've thought a lot more about it and I'm still as adamant against it as I always used to be so what what's your feeling well, the way I always talk to people about a disease when and we'll, we'll, we'll play the game I will I will do it with you so when you hear the word disease what's the first thing you think of I think of cancer because I had cancer and that was a disease. When you hear about cancer or any disease that you have, what even deeper than, than that, what does that mean about you? If I say you have a disease. I felt powerless when I had cancer. I had a disease, you know, sort of things were going on in my body that I had absolutely no control over. So when you're powerless, that means, and especially in the Western civilization, when you're powerless, that means there's something wrong with you because we're supposed to be powerful yeah. and in control and all these other things. So basically a disease means there's something wrong. So if you tell an addict you have a disease, you're basically saying there's something wrong with you. Yeah, you're broken you're, in some way. Yeah, you're broken. There's something wrong with you. But then, like you just said, I have yet to meet an addict who ever has said, you know what? I do feel like I have a disease. Almost every addict, if you tell them that and they haven't really thought about it, they go, well, of course it's a disease. Why is it a disease? Because people have told me it's a disease. My doctor told me it was a disease. My therapist told me it was a disease and all these other things. But if you think about it, Think about what addiction really, really is. What the medical community says a disease is, it's something that is chronic, that can't be cured, but it can be controlled. So then they look at the disease model and or they look at, at addiction and say, well, look at it. Addiction changes the brain. And the reason it changes the brain is because you're taking copious amounts of a substance. So if you're taking copious amounts of a substance and it changes the brain, and now because of the way it changed the brain, you don't, you can't control your compulsivity, you, you have no willpower, and all these things have happened, so that's a disease. But if you think about it, Alzheimer's is a disease. We know that's a disease, but why is it a disease? Because it's degenerative. It actually hurts and takes away parts of the brain. Diabetes. My little brother, Marty, had diabetes. Diabetes is a disease. It actually changes the pancreas. The brain, though, was made to change. That's what it's called, neuroplasticity. Exactly. And, and so and neuroplasticity is learning. So when you learn, that's all what you're doing is your brain is changing. So when you're addicted to something, your brain changes, but your brain changes because you focused on saying, I'm not okay, what has to happen or change so I feel okay. And whatever substance you find, like I know for most of the tribes over, it's alcohol, you found this and you learn that this alcohol makes you feel great, at least at the moment. So you're, you learn this habit. And then that's, that's what's really going on in your brain. It's not degenerative. It's just your brain has changed to learn a habit. So it's, it's exact opposite of what yeah. disease is. The reason that we have to not concentrate on the disease model, number one, it's not a disease. And if it's not a disease and you're thinking it's a disease, you're never actually going to be able to help anyone. If someone told me, oh, well, you've got a disease, so 
it's going to be very difficult to change that. I would think, oh, well, you know, I've got a disease, so maybe it's not even worth trying. But I love the way you just describe addiction as a learned coping mechanism, because when we stop using, then we have to go through quite an uncomfortable period, don't we, where we learn those coping skills and they come naturally because that's how how we should function and we have to go through we've got a saying that we use a lot we say we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable and that's how we learn to cope you know with a, a party we have to almost go through the fire but that's healthy because that's pain but it's going to help us to grow but it's it's much more healthy obviously than than using something So we've said that addiction is a learned coping mechanism. So what would you say to an addict? How can they unlearn this this coping mechanism? Where should they start? The the most important thing is to know why you do what you do. And most of us don't have a clue about why we do what we do. And the only reason we do what we do is because we think it's going to be pleasurable either right now or in the future. So the reason you get up at 8 a.m. to go to a really boring class when you were in college was because you knew that if you went to that class, you could get a degree and that degree was worth whatever career you wanted to go for. So you need to know why you do what you do. And if an addict can understand that, it all of a sudden it gives them hope. One of the really interesting things that they've done research on is that When you're depressed and you make that call to talk to a therapist or a psychiatrist for for the first time, you feel much better because you actually did something and you now feel like you have hope and you're going to learn about why, why life sucks right now. The difference between taking an SSRI for depression and then taking a placebo is there's no difference. They, They both work about the same amount. And it's because you've got hope and you think that now something is going to change. So when I'm talking to addicts, I'm trying to show them first why they do what they do. The reason they're doing what they're doing is because they're more sane than the person who's not an addict. Because the person who's not an addict is also getting up every morning, looking in the mirror and saying, why is life so hard? And I really thought I'd be more happy and successful for now. So I'm just going to put on this mask and go live life. Addicts put the mask on to hide their addiction, but they're not so foolish to look in the mirror and say, why does they're saying life sucks? I'm going to do something about it. And so they so they start drinking or things like that. And once you realize that you don't have to do that, that you have an exceptional brain, you have exceptional skills. Society is wrong, not you, because they're trying to put you into a box they get that hope. It's just like getting that first calling that therapist or the psychiatrist. If you're depressed, you've actually started to do something. And then they need to keep doing what they're doing with you. They need to stay in that group, a group of like-minded people that care about them and understand them. So AA works for some people because they get that, but it's also teaching them you're an addict and you're not. It's just like if you were married, and you're divorced. Once you're divorced, you're not married anymore, right? So once you're an addict, you're not always an addict. You're always exceptional with your brain, and you're going to want to do things like an addict maybe likes to do, but you're not addicted to the maladaptive habit anymore. And once they see that they don't have to be chained to that, life changes. Yeah. 
I never say I'm an alcoholic. I always say I'm someone that drank far too much and now I don't. I don't like labels. But I I love this take on hope and faith because at the beginning of this thing, it seems so overwhelming that I'm never going to drink again. It, It just seems so daunting. But we recommend that people do it in stages, obviously. But it's impossible to see in early sobriety just how your life could change. It's impossible to imagine that. So that's another advantage of being in a community because you see people much further down the line than you and you think, well, she did it. She's nothing special. Maybe I can do this thing too. And she seems quite happy. (laughs) And it gives you hope. And the funny thing about hope is that when we look at hope, most of us think of hope as just being optimism. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today because I'm going to, I want to have a picnic. And what hope really is, is more of an insurance or a confidence in something. But you have to have assurance and confidence in that. So the way I always describe it is if somebody says, I hope I get an A on a test. And I would be like, well, why do you think you're going to get an A on a test? Is it just wishful thinking? And they go, well, no, I get an A on 99% of the tests I take. I studied really hard. I know the topic. So I really hope I get an A. But what they're really saying is, I've worked really hard and I have some insurance and confidence that I can get an A. Well, that's what you're doing with addicts. Once you give them a reason to hold on to that, and if nothing else, you just say, look how exceptional your brain is. Look, Janet, you were drinking whatever, a bottle of wine every night and no one knew. You had your shit together (laughs) to to the outside world. I did. (laughs) Think of that skill. That skill to do that. I abused alcohol for from about 18 to 30. And the reason I quit was I wasn't as good as you. I wasn't as tough as you and I couldn't fake it. So I had to quit. The hangovers hurt too much. I couldn't be perfect if I was drinking alcohol, all those other things. So you have skills that I couldn't do at all. Now I'm I'm as much of an addict as you, but a different way. That's the hope you're giving them because all of a sudden it's just like the test A. The, The addict is going to say when they first start I don't think I can do this. I really, really want this. Yeah, I know you really want this. I know you really want this, but you don't have to because look at how you made the goal of getting to get the bottle of wine every day and to fake it and to look that way. That's the same hope that you can have now that you can stop this. And I'm here with you. And the hope, it can also be described as, as faith. If you do the work and keep doing the work and hang in there, then it's going to happen. And once people start believing that, then it it all comes together. Yeah, I mean, I held it all together for a number of years, many years, but I could recognize that it was falling apart. I just about stopped it in time. One of the things I want to say about this, too, and this is really about the whole part of it, we're the lucky ones. We're the lucky ones to be addicts, and this is, and I'll tell you why. Anything worth getting in life involves pain and hard work. And addicts actually have that mirror of pain right in front of them that they can't escape. They can't put the mask on. We can put the mask on like you did and I did for, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. But sooner or later, that mask comes off because it's just too obvious to us when we look in the mirror, we see all those things. I kind of use you as an example for this. I actually talk to people and, and use you on this. So you can let me know um, if I'm accurate with what I'm saying with, with this. So you're, you're smart and you're driven and you were really good at your job. 
but that wasn't fulfilling to you because if it would have been fulfilling to you, then the, the idea of having to drink a bottle of wine at night to relieve some sort of pain or discomfort or something wouldn't have happened. So when you were doing your career, you weren't super fulfilled. You were striving, you were doing all those other things with that. You use the alcohol then to cover up the pain because you're not happy. You got sober, you figured out what was going on and now you've got your purpose of doing this. And you've told me, you don't, the idea of having a drink now is painful. It's as painful as it was before of saying, I need the drink. And you're able to use the hope and the faith and saying, it's poison. Look what it did to my body. It didn't really make me happy. So the pain of being an addict got you to get to your purpose where now you're happy. You can be a blessing to other people and you're doing what you were designed to do. People that aren't addicts, how are they ever going to get there? I don't know. Finding purpose is so important, and we see it over and over again when people connect with their purpose. That there's no stopping them, and we are the luckiest. Yes, I mean, there's even a book called "We Are the Luckiest," and we we say to people when they join Tribe Sober, we say, "Be excited," you know, because a lot of people come along going, "Oh no." A lady came to one of my workshops once, and she said, "Oh," she said, "Well, I know the past is over now. I know my life is over as from today." And she genuinely would believe that. Yeah. I still know her, and we laugh about it now. But that's what she felt. So pe- people feel really depressed at the beginning, and I did too. So when we say to people, "Don't feel depressed. Feel excited. Keep an open mind, and magic will happen." Well, and it's because it's become your best friend and your lover and everything else it possibly can be whatever you're addicted to and it's even it's more than best friend and lover honestly it's your savior it's the one thing that's making you say i'm okay i'm okay i'm okay as long as i do whatever i'm addicted to and when when you have that and you lose that you're lost for a while there's no way you cannot be lost for it But then you just basically learn the new habit. And like you said, and find your real purpose. And so finding your purpose and then using all those skills and energy like you're doing and like you're talking to other people, that's the key. Yeah, because uh, as you said in one of your articles, we've been sold a pipe dream, haven't we? Just as we've been convinced that we need alcohol to have a happy and full and interesting life. That's what the liquor industry wants us to believe, even though it's poisoning some of us. We've been sold this pipe dream about happiness, haven't we? Yes, very, very much so. Very much so. And the, the funny thing about happiness is it's the reason that almost all of us in the 21st century get out of bed in the morning. Because if you think about it, the only reason you're getting out of bed in the morning is to get something that you think is going to be pleasurable. If you can't do it pleasurable, you're just doing it to survive. And if you really look at it, how many times a day does it go through your head? I would be happier if blank happened, or I would be happier if this changed. And that's really what we're striving for life. So if you don't like your job, you don't like your job because you don't like your boss or you're not being fulfilled. You're saying, I would be happy if my boss did this, or if I had a new boss. And that's how we're all living our life. And when addicts are too smart for that, they go, I can't get happy with my job or with whatever I'm doing with this type of a thing. I don't know what to do. So let's drink a bottle of wine or a bottle of Jack Daniels or something every night. And once you understand why you're doing what you're doing, 
then you can stop. And if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, it's super hard. If you get in enough pain, you're going to quit, but you're going to quit the behavior and not find your purpose. And you're just going to go from one addiction to another. We're both fans of Viktor Frankl, I think, aren't we? I'm sure we've talked about him before. But I love the way he says, you know, we're not here to just to have pleasure as Freud um, believed or power, isn't it? So that Adler believed. But we're here to find meaning and purpose in our life. And that just encapsulates it beautifully. And another way I think about it sometimes is think about our ancestors, you know, in the, when they'd wake up in the caves in the morning, they'd be hungry, so they'd have to go and find an animal and they'd eat and then they'd be cold and they have to make a fire. So they're always busy, you know, always having purpose. And our brains haven't changed since then. So our brains are meant to work on having a purpose. Exactly. And the cool thing is, is that, if you understand how our brains, the neuroplasticity part of changing the brain, our modern lifestyle, what it's done is it's actually increased our responses to needing dopamine. And dopamine is the movement and motivation chemical. And if you think about goals, what is a goal? To get a goal, you have to be motivated and move. So our bodies crave dope, our brains crave dopamine now more than they ever did before. Our ancestors used dopamine to say, oh, I'm out of the cave. I see an apple tree two miles away in the horizon. I'm motivated now and have movement to go and get it. Now we do the exact opposite. We don't have to worry about getting an apple tree. We start worrying about why aren't I happy? And then the dopamine says, well, I'm going to make you happy. So let's motivate and move towards a goal. And what is the goal of addicts? Bottle of wine. I love your story of the woman who said, I don't like cooking. I thought I loved cooking, but I realized the only reason I ever cooked was because it meant that I could open up a bottle of wine. That was her motivation and goal. So her brain, the minute she started cooking, started pushing out dopamine like you wouldn't believe, and her receptors just sucked that up. Our ancestors didn't have to worry about that because they were too busy doing their purpose of staying alive. So yeah, you're you're 100% right. So you've got a book coming out soon that I've had the pleasure of having a look at. It's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about it. The title is uh, Unlearning Addiction. And the reason I wrote the book was my little brother died of his opiate addiction and I became super depressed. And so I said, I need to do something about that. That's just how my brain works. And so I started to research about what was going on with our brains and all these other things with that. I was calling up all these professors from Stanford and MIT and talking to them. And I was able to put a bunch of things together. And I realized that addiction is a learned behavior, that absolutely everything we do is something that we've learned. And our brain loves habits. Our brain just wants to be really efficient. And so what addiction really is, is a learned habit, a learned coping mechanism that says, I'm not okay. What has to happen or change so I feel okay? And when I find that, then I say, I feel great. What has to remain the same so I feel great? And that's completely learned. So if it's learned, that means it can be unlearned. And that was my hope. Because once I learned that, then all of a sudden I realized I didn't have to be an addict. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to go drink a bottle of wine every night. And so that's what the book is about. The book is explaining why we do what we do and then gives us the hope and the tools to be able to stop the maladaptive habits 
and build good habits and finding our purpose by having hope. I think the book will help so many people to, first of all, feel better about themselves, to realize that they're, they're not broken, they're exceptional, and that there is a way to use that specialness to really get their purpose in life. And it's about rechanneling into positive things, right, isn't it? Exactly. And like, I, I want to just say so much that all of us who are addicts have these exceptional brains. We just see things different than what the, how the world sees them. And if you can understand that, and then you can see why the world is telling you you need to be that way and why you're not that way and why you've done the foolish things you've done, you can change. And that's the hope. That's the number one hope. And then if we can get a whole community together, just like what you're doing there, and you build off of each other, and then all of a sudden you're in your own tribe. If you're only around people that are telling you, you got weak. You're a weak person to be an addict or something like that, or that we should ostracize you and criminalize. You're never going to get out of it because you're going to believe those lies. So let's open up our eyes. Let's remove that filter that society wants to have on you. Like you always say with the, the marketing industry with alcohol, alcohol is trying to get you to be basically be an alcoholic because they want to make money out of it. And if you can open your eyes to see what they're doing, you're never going to buy that product again. And then when you have a whole group of tribe that's saying the same thing, you don't have to buy that. But if, if we leave this tribe and get to a tribe that starts talking about the marketing thing again, you might start believing it. I would say probably once a week, I, I hear something and I start to think about it and I hear it over and over again. And I go, well, maybe that's true. And I know it's not. And that's the same thing that happens if you don't stay in this group, this tribe. So why go in the old tribe? It made you miserable and, and an addict and all the other things. Yeah. Once you can see things differently, that, that's the key, isn't it? Because when I, I used to try and stop drinking alone and fail, and, and I would think, oh, I'm so hopeless. I've got no willpower. But now, of course, I understand all this. It's nothing to do with willpower. It's about mindset. And once you see alcohol as the poison that it is, and once you see how we've been manipulated endlessly by the liquor industry, particularly women, We've been targeted by the wine industry for 25 years now, and it's worked like a dream. But once you see through it, I watch a movie and I think, okay, how long till the star of this show shows its face? That's alcohol, and it's usually five minutes to be <laughs> a glass of wine or a bottle of scotch or yeah, something. Yeah. And I just laugh, but I, did, I never knew that before. I used to subliminally absorb all this oh, look at this career woman with her big glass of red in the evening. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and once you know why you do what you do and why society is telling you you should fall in line, you basically see what's going on. You can decide that. You can decide if you want to do this or not. But until you know why you do what you do, you're just following yeah. the yeah. herd. We're not thinking creatures. We're feeling and emotive creatures. So that's what we're living all of our yeah. fuel that goes yeah. through our brain is doing is basically saying how do i feel okay and how do i feel good and then we use cognitive dissonance to say oh but this is the logical reason why i'm doing this like this is, of course i'm going to have a glass of wine because every other executive is having wine or a cocktail i'm going to feel foolish if i don't do that and look how great their life is and it's not hurting them but once you see why they're doing it and why you are doing it then you don't have to the thing about it is, is once you become sober and you know why you're doing what you're doing, 
you don't have to have the alcohol to repress the stress and the inhibitions. You learn the habit of being yourself and you say, I like myself. So now you can act just like you thought you were acting when you were drinking, but you can be your real self and not have to wear that mask and then go in there and do all these other things. And that is so cool. When you can get into a room and be yourself and be confident without having to have an artificial substance in your body, oh my God, life just opens up. And then all of a sudden people respect you and you remember everything you said and you didn't say things to try to make yourself feel okay. You said these things because that's who you really are, your authentic self, and you're vulnerable enough because of these things. And you're showing that to other people. When you show that to other people, then then they're attracted to you and your businesses grow. And everything in life happens because who do you want to be around? You want to be around a cocky drunk or a vulnerable, authentic, confident person. So your book, when is it coming out, Will? Have you got a publication date? I don't have a publication date with it. So I don't know exactly when the book is going to be done. If I had to guess, the book will probably be out in July and August. But I was going to say this. If you go to Unlearning Addiction. Dot com, and you say that you're part of Janet's tribe and that I'm going to send everybody the manuscript. And so that way you can take a look at it and see what you think. So you're going to kind of get a sneak preview of it. But the actual book probably won't be done until June or July. Let's pull out a few of the key points from that conversation. Will told us about his early tragic experience of addiction when his younger brother died. After that, he became depressed and frustrated as he had no idea how he could have helped his brother. And on reflection, Will decided that he was an addict as well, not to a substance, but to perfectionism. Will did many courses as he loved to learn, but one day one of his professors came to him and explained that it was time he switched his focus from facts to finding out why people did what they did. So this advice, along with his brother's death, was the catalyst to him studying addiction and discovering what addiction really is, and that it's actually not what we've been taught. He talked to us about the many homeless addicts in Seattle and pointed out that they all have exceptional skills, skills that we cannot even comprehend, skills to survive and to score their drugs. And most of us would not last more than a couple of days if we had to live that kind of life. And then we talked about functioning alcoholics and how skilled we are at keeping the show on the road, holding down the high-powered job and managing a family and drinking a bottle of wine at night. So whether we're talking about a homeless addict or a high-powered functioning alcoholic, they can both redirect their skills and their energy to leading a life that will give them purpose. As Will explained, we need to give people hope, hope that there is a way out. We discussed the disease model, which neither of us subscribe to. Yes, alcohol consumption does change the brain, but according to neuroscience, our brains are meant to change. Falling in love changes our brain. When we've become dependent on alcohol, our brain has simply learned a habit, a habit that can be replaced by a healthy habit. 
we'll compare this with Alzheimer's disease, which is, of course, a disease and takes away parts of the brain. And cancer is also a disease where the cancerous cells take over and cause tumours. Will describes addiction as a learned coping mechanism. When we unlearn it and stop drinking, of course we'll have to go through a difficult period as we replace the harmful habit with a new and healthy one. In our experience here at Tribe Sober, most people take between three and six months to get through this transition. We agreed on the importance of having a tribe, even when we're no longer drinking. If we leave our tribe, we can easily fall prey to our previous thought patterns and start wondering if we're able to have just one drink now. Spoiler alert, we probably can't. We get quite a few returning members to our tribe, people who've discovered that without the connection, they flounder. Will talked about the importance of knowing why we do what we do. He helps addicts to understand why they do what they do and also tells them that they have an exceptional brain. Addicts are able to see the world differently. And when addicts understand this and realise that they can use their exceptional skills to turn their life around, they begin to feel hope. Will feels that those of us that have struggled with dependency are in fact the lucky ones. We can get through the pain of our addiction and find our real purpose in life on the other side. And once we understand why we do what we do, we can go on to discover our purpose. If we just stop drinking without understanding why we drank, we won't be able to find our purpose and we may just go from one addiction to another. As we often say at Tribe Sober, there's so much more to recovery than not drinking. We have to create an alcohol-free life that we love, a life full of joy and purpose, a life we don't want to escape from. Will has a book coming out soon called Unlearning Addiction. I've read the manuscript and it's fascinating. The premise of his book is that addiction is a learned behaviour that we can unlearn. We can replace it with healthy habits which will lead to a life of purpose. The book will explain why we do what we do and it will give the hope that people need, along with the tools to change. Will kindly offered to share the manuscript with anyone who contacts him and mentions Tribe Sober. So you can contact him at unlearningaddiction at gmail.com. So let me finish with a message from one of our chat rooms. This one's from Anja in South Africa. Anja was consoling somebody that had a slip up. She said, Never beat yourself up if you have a slip. I've had about four glasses of champagne over a six-month period. It was either a birthday celebration or a holiday. I did not go back to day one on these days as it would have been so back-breaking. I have in my head that I want to live a sober life. I never want to be drunk again or suffer a hangover. So if I have a celebration glass once in a blue moon, I don't even want more. This is easier now at six months sober. Maybe not everyone can do this, but I've managed to set this in my head. The key thing is to keep connected. Even if you just read the group messages. Read some quick lit books and listen to the podcasts. 
Alcohol-free drinks have helped me a lot. The alcohol-free champagne and duchess with soda and fresh lemon is delicious. And remember, you're never alone in this tribe. Thank you, Anja. If you'd like to connect with our community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. That's it from me. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.